Section 18 of the Phenomenology of Mind, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by phone. The Phenomenology of Mind, Volume 1, by George Wilhelm Friedrich Hegel. Translated by James Black Bailey. Chapter 5a, Subsection C, Physiognomy and Phrenology, Part 2 if we now look at the range of relations as a whole in which self-conscious individuality can be observed standing towards its outer aspect there will be one left which has still to come before observation as an object in psychology it is the external reality of things which in the life of mind is to have its counterpart conscious of itself and make the mind intelligible in physiognomy on the other hand mind or spirit is to be known in its own proper outer physical aspect a form of being which may be called the language or utterance of mind the visible invisibility of its inner nature there is still left the further character of the aspect of reality that individuality expresses its nature in its immediate actuality an actuality that is definitely fixed and purely existent this last relation of mind to its reality is distinguished from the physiognomic by the fact that this is the speaking presence of the individual who in his practical active outer expression brings to light and manifests at the same time the expression wherein he reflects himself into himself and contemplates himself an expression which is itself a movement passive lineaments which are themselves essentially a mediated form of existence in the feature still to be considered however the outer phase is in the end an entirely inactive objectivity which is not in itself a speaking sign but presents itself on its own account separate from the self-conscious process and has the form of a bare thing in the first place in regard to the relation of the inner to this its outer it is clear that that relation seems bound to be understood in the sense of a casual connection since the relation of one immanent and inherent entity to another qua a necessary relation is causal connection now for spiritual individuality to have an effect on the body it must qua cause be itself corporeal the corporeal aspect however wherein it acts as a cause is the organ not the organ of action on external reality but of the action of the self-conscious being within itself operating outward only on its own body it is at the same time not easy to see what these organs can be if we merely think of organs in general the organ for work and toil would at once occur to us so too the organ of sex and so on but organs of that sort are to be considered as instruments or parts which mind qua one extreme possesses as a means for dealing with the other extreme which is an outer object in the present case however an organ is to be understood to be one wherein the self-conscious individual as an extreme maintains himself on his own account and for himself against his own proper actuality which is opposed to him the individual not being at the same time turned upon the outer world but reflected in his own action and where further his aspect of existence is not an existence objective for some other individual in the case of physiognomy too the organ is no doubt considered as an existence reflected into self and criticizing the action but in this case the existence is objective in character and the outcome of the physiognomical treatment is that self-consciousness treats its own reality as something to which it can be indifferent this indifference disappears in the fact that this very state of being reflected into self is directly active thereby that existence occupies and maintains a necessary relation to it but to operate effectually on that existence it must itself have a being though not properly speaking an objective being 
and it must be shown to be an organ in this sense in ordinary life anger for example as an internal action of that sort is located in the liver plato even assigns the liver something still higher something which to many is even the highest function of all that is prophesying or the gift of uttering in an irrational manner things sacred and eternal but the process which goes on in the individual's liver heart and so on cannot be regarded as one wholly internal to the individual wholly reflected into his self rather it is there in such a form that his body is from the first smitten with it and the process assumes a physical existence becomes an animal force reacting on and directed toward external reality the nervous system on the other hand is the immediate stability of the organism in its process of movement the nerves themselves no doubt are again organs of that consciousness which from the first is immersed in its outward impulses brain and spinal cord however may be looked at as the immediate presence of self-consciousness a presence self-contained not an object and also not transient in so far as the moment of being which this organ has is a being for another is an objective existence it is a being that is dead and is no longer the presence of self-consciousness the self-contained existence however is by its very nature a fluent stream wherein the circles that are made in it immediately break up and dissolve and where no distinction is expressed as permanent or real meanwhile as mind itself is not an abstractly simple entity but a system of processes wherein it distinguishes itself into moments but in the very act of distinguishing remains free and detached and as mind articulates its body as a whole into a variety of functions and designates one particular part of the body for only one function so too one can represent to oneself the fluent state of its internal existence its existence within itself as something that is articulated into parts moreover it seems bound to be thought of in this way because the self-reflected being of the mind in the brain itself is again merely a middle term between its pure essential nature and its bodily articulation an intermediate link which thereby forms the nature of both and thus from the side of the latter must also again have in it the actual articulation the psycho-organic being has at the same time the necessary aspect of a stable subsistent existence the former must retire qua extreme of self-existence and have this latter as the other extreme over against it an extreme which is then the object on which the former acts as a cause if now brain and spinal cord are that bodily self-existence of mind the skull and vertebral column form the other extreme separated off that is the solid fixed stable thing when however any one thinks of the proper place where mind exists it is not the back that occurs to him but merely the head since this is so we can in examining a form of knowledge like what we are at present dealing with content ourselves with this reason not a very bad one in the present case in order to confine the existence of mind to the skull should it strike any one to take the vertebral column for the seat of mind in so far as by it too knowledge and action doubtless are sometimes partly induced and partly educed this would prove nothing in defence of the view that the spinal cord must be taken as well for the indwelling seat of mind and the vertebral column for the existential counterpart because this proves too much for we may bear in mind that there are also other approved external ways for succoring this activity of mind in order to stimulate or inhibit its activity the vertebral column then drops rightly if we like out of account and our construing that the skull alone does not in fact contain the organs of mind is just as good as many other doctrines construed by philosophy of nature 
for this was previously excluded from the notion of this relation and on that account the skull was adopted as the aspect of existence or if we may not recall what the state of the case essentially and in principle involves even experience teaches us clearly that as we do not see with the eye qua organ so it is not with the skull that we commit murder steal read poetry etc we must on that account refrain too from using the expression organ when speaking of the significance of the skull which we have still to mention for although it is a common thing to hear people say that to reasonable men it is not words but facts that really matter yet that does not give us permission to describe a thing in terms not appropriate to it for this is at once stupidity and deceit pretending merely not to have the right word and hiding from itself that in reality it has not got hold of the fact itself the notion if the latter were there it would soon find the right word what has been here determined is in the first instance merely that just as the brain is the caput vivum the skull is the caput mortum it is in this ens mortum then that the mental processes and specific functions of the brain would have to find their external reality manifested and set forth a reality which is none the less in the individual himself for the relation of those processes and functions to what being an ens mortum does not contain mind indwelling within it there is offered in the first instance the external and mechanical factor the fixed solid element above mentioned so that the organs proper and these are in the brain here press the skull out round there make it broad or force it flat or in whatever way we care to state the effect thus exerted being itself a part of the organism it must be supposed to have in it too as is the case in every bone an active living formative influence so that from this point of view it really from its side presses the brain and fixes its external boundary which it is the better able to do being the harder in that shape however the relation of the activity of the one to the other would always maintain the same character for whether the skull is the determining factor or the factor determined this would effect no alteration in the general causal connection only that the skull would then be made the immediate organ of self-consciousness because its aspect of existence for self would find expression in its causal function but since self-existence in the sense of organic living activity belongs to both in the same manner the causal connection between them in point of fact drops altogether this development of the two however would be inwardly connected and would be an organic pre-established harmony which leaves the two interrelated aspects free as regards one another each with its own proper form and shape without the shape needing to correspond to that of the other and still more so as regards the relation of the shape and the quality just as the form of the grape and the taste of wine are mutually independent of one another since however the character of self-existence turns on the brain while that of existence turns on the feature of skull there is also a causal connection to be set up between them inside the organic unity a necessary relation between them as external for one another that is a relation itself external whereby their form and shape is determined the one through the other as regards the characteristic however in virtue of which the organ of self-consciousness would operate causally on the opposite aspect all sorts of statements can be made for the question concerns the peculiarity of a cause which is considered in regard to what for it is indifferent its formal shape and quantity a cause whose inner nature and self-existence are to be precisely what leave quite unaffected the immediately existing aspect the organic self-formation of the skull is to begin with indifferent to the mechanical influence exerted and the relationship in which these two processes stand since the former consists in relating itself to itself 
is just this very indeterminateness and boundlessness furthermore even though the brain accepted the distinctions of mind and took them into itself as existential distinctions and where a plurality of inner organs occupying each a different space it would be left undecided whether a mental element would according as it was originally stronger or weaker either be bound to possess in the first case a more expanded brain organ or in the latter case a more contracted brain organ or just the other way about but it is contradictory to nature for the brain to be such a plurality of internal organs for nature gives the moments of the notion an existence of their own and hence puts the fluent simplicity of organic life clear on one side and its articulation and division with its distinctions and the other so that in the way they have to be taken here they assume the form of particular anatomical facts the same holds good in regard to the question whether the improvement of the brain would enlarge or diminish the organ whether it would make it coarser and thicker or finer by the fact that it remains undetermined how the cause is constituted it is left in the same way undecided how the effect exerted on the skull comes about whether it is a widening or a narrowing and shrinking of it suppose this effect is named in perhaps more distinguished phrase a solicitation we cannot say whether this takes place by swelling like the action of a cantharidus plaster or by shriveling like the action of vinegar in defence of all views of that kind plausible reasons can be adduced for the organic relation which quite as much exerts its influence finds one fit as well as another and is indifferent to all this wit of mere understanding it is however not the interest of observation to seek to determine this relation for it is in any case not the brain in the sense of a physical part which takes its stand on one side but brain in the sense of the existential form of self-conscious individuality this individuality qua abiding character and self-moving conscious activity exists for itself and within itself opposed to this existence within itself and on its own account stand its reality and its existence for another its own peculiar existence is the essential nature and is subject having a being in the brain this being is subsumed under it and gets its value and worth merely through its inherent and indwelling significance the other aspect of self-conscious individuality however that of its existence is being qua independent and subject or qua a thing that is a bone the real existence of man is a skull-bone this is the relationship and the sense which the two aspects of this relation have when the mind adopts the attitude of observation observation has now to deal with the more specific and determinate relation of these aspects the skull-bone doubtless in general has the significance of being the immediate reality of mind but the many-sidedness of mind gives its existence a corresponding variety of meanings what we have to find out is the specific meaning of the particular regions into which this existence is divided and we have to see how the reference to mind is denoted in them the skull-bone is not an organ of activity nor even a process of utterance we neither commit theft murder etc with the skull-bone nor does it in the least contort the face to suit the deed in such cases so that the skull should express the meaning in the language of gesture nor does this existential form possess the value even of a sign and symbol look and gesture tone even a pillar or a post stuck up on a desert island proclaim at once that they stand for something else than what they merely are at first sight they forthwith profess to be signs since they have in them a characteristic which points to something else by the fact that it does not belong peculiarly to them 
doubtless too in the case of a skull there is many an idea that may occur to us like those of hamlet over yorick's skull but the skull-bone by itself is such an indifferent object such a harmless thing that there is nothing else to be seen in it or to be thought about it directly as it is except simply the fact of its being a skull it no doubt reminds us of the brain and its specific nature and skulls with other formations but it does not recall a conscious process since there is impressed on it neither a look or gesture nor anything which would show traces of derivation from a conscious activity for it is that form of reality which in the case of individuality is intended to set forth and make manifest another aspect of a kind that would no longer be an existence reflecting into itself but bare immediate existence while further the skull does not itself feel there seems still a possibility of providing it with a more determinate significance in the fact that specific feelings or sensations might enable us through their being contiguous or in proximity to it to find out what the skull may mean to convey and since a conscious mode of mind has its feelings in a specific region of the skull it may be thought perhaps that this localization on the shape of the skull may indicate what the mode is and what its peculiar nature just as for example many people complain of feeling a painful tension somewhere in the head when thinking intensely or even when thinking at all so it might be that stealing committing murder writing poetry and so on could each be accompanied with its own proper feeling which would over and above be bound to have its peculiar localization this locality of the brain which would in this manner be more disturbed and exercised would also most likely modify further the contiguous locality of the bone of the skull or again this latter locality would from sympathy or conformity not be inert but would enlarge or diminish or in some other way assume a corresponding form what however makes such a hypothesis improbable is this feeling in general is something indeterminate and that feeling in the head as the centre might well be the general feeling that accompanies all suffering so that mixed up with the thieves murderers poets tickling or pain in the head there would be other feelings too and they would permit of being distinguished from one another or from those we may call bodily feelings as little as an illness can be determined from the symptom of headache if we restrict its meaning merely to the bodily element in point of fact from whatever side we look at the matter all necessary reciprocal relation between them ceases to be of any account and so too any intimation the one might give of the other in virtue of such a relation if the relation is still to hold what is left to form a sort of necessary relation is a pre-established harmony of the corresponding features of the two sides a harmony which leaves the factors in question quite detached and rests on no inherent principle for one of the aspects has to be a non-mental reality a bare thing thus then on one side we have a number of passive regions of the skull and the other a number of mental properties the variety and character of which will depend on the condition of psychological investigation the poorer the idea we have of mind the easier the matter becomes in this respect for in part the fewer become the mental properties and in part the more detached fixed and ossified and consequently more akin to features of the bone and more comparable with them but while much is doubtless made easier by this miserable representation of the mind there still remains a very great deal to be found on both sides there remains for observation to deal with the entire contingency of their relation when every faculty of the soul every passion and for this too must be considered here the various shades of characters which hyper-subtle psychology and knowledge of mankind are accustomed to talk about 
are each and all assigned their place on the skull and their contour on the skull bone the arbitrariness and artificiality of the procedure are just as glaring as if the children of israel who had been likened to the sand by the seashore for multitude had each assigned and taken to himself his own symbolic grain of sand the skull of a murderer has not this organ or sign but this bump but this murderer has in addition a lot of other properties and other bumps too and along with the bumps hollows as well bumps and hollows there is room for selection and again his murderous propensity can be referred to some bump or hollow or another and this in turn to some mental quality or another for the murderer is neither this abstract of a murderer nor does he have merely one protuberance and one depression the observations offered on this point must therefore sound just about as sensible as those of the dealer about the rain at the annual fair and of the housewife at her washing time dealer and housewife might as well make the observation that it always rains when some neighbour passes by or when they have roast pork from the point of view of observation a given determinate characteristic of mind is just as indifferent to and independent of a given specific formation of the skull as the rain in regards to circumstances like these for of the two objects thus under observation the one is an arid entity existing on its own account an ossified quality of mind as the other is an arid entity inherently existing in itself such an ossified entity as they both are is completely indifferent to everything else it is just as much a matter of indifference to a high bump whether a murderer is in close proximity as to the murderer whether flatness is near him there is of course no getting over the possibility that still remains that a bump at a certain place is connected with a certain property passion etc we can think of the murderer with a high bump here at this place on the skull the thief with one there from this point of view phrenology is capable of much greater extension than it has yet had for in the first instance it seems to be restricted merely to the connection of a bump with a property in one and the same individual in the sense that this individual possesses both but phrenology per naturam for there must be such a subject as well as physiognomy per naturam goes a long way beyond this restriction it does not merely affirm that a cunning fellow has a bump like a fist lying behind the ear but also puts forward the view that not the unfaithful wife herself but the other party to this conjugal transaction has a bump on the brow in the same way one may too imagine and conjecture the man living under the same roof with the murderer or even one's own neighbour or going still further afield conjecture one's fellow-citizens etc with high bumps on some part of the skull just as well as one may picture to oneself the flying cow that was caressed by the crab riding on a donkey and afterwards etc etc but if possibility is taken not in the sense of a possibility of imagining and conjecturing and picturing but in the sense of inner possibility or possibility of conceiving then the object is a reality of the kind which is a mere thing and is and should be deprived of the significance of reality and can thus only have the sense of it for imaginative or figurative thinking the observer may in spite of the indifference of the two sides to one another set to work to determine correlations supported partly by the general rational principle that the outer is the expression of the inner and partly by the analogy of the skulls of animals which may doubtless have a simpler character than men but of which at the same time it becomes just so much the more difficult to say what character they do have and that it cannot be so easy for any man's imagination to think himself really into the nature of an animal 
should the observer do so he will find in giving out for certain the laws he maintains he has discovered a first-rate means of assistance in a distinction which we too must necessarily take note of at this point the being of mind cannot be taken at any rate to be something completely rigid and immovable man is free it will be admitted that the mind's original primordial being consists merely in dispositions which mind has to a large extent under its control or which require favourable circumstances to draw them out that is an original being of mind can be equally well spoken of as a being which does not as such exist at all were observations to conflict with what strikes any one as a law which he is sure of and can give out for certain should it happen to be fine weather at the annual fair or on the housewife's washing day then dealer and housewife might say that it properly speaking should rain and the conditions are really all that way so too in the case of observing the skull it might be said when those contradictory observations occur that the given individual ought properly to be what according to the law his skull proclaims him to be and that he has an original disposition which however has not been brought out and fulfilled this quality is not really present but it should be there the law and the ought to be rest on observation of actual showers of rain and observation of the actual sense and meaning in the case of the given specific character of the skull but if the reality is not present the empty possibility is of just as much significance this mere possibility that is the non-actuality of the law proposed and hence the observations conflicting with the law are bound to come out just for the reason that the freedom of the individual and the circumstances gradually involved are indifferent towards what merely is both in the sense of the original inner as well as the external ossiform structure and also because the individual can be something else than he is in his original internal nature and still more than what he is as a skull bone we get then the possibility that a given bump or hollow on the skull may denote both something actual as well as a mere disposition one indeed so little determined in any given direction as to denote something that is not actual at all we find the excuse made which comes of badly as a prevarication always does that it is itself there for use against what it ought to assist we see the thinking that merely means and conjectures brought by the very force of facts to say in unintelligent fashion the very opposite of what it holds to to say that there is something indicated and signified by such and such a bone but also just as truly not indicated at all what hovers before this way of conjecturing when it makes this shift is the true thought a thought however which abolishes that way of conjecturing that being as such is not at all the truth of spirit as the disposition is an original primordial being having no share in the activity of mind just such a being is the skull bone on its side what merely is without participating in spiritual activity is for consciousness a thing and so little is it the essence of mind that it is rather the very opposite of it and consciousness is only actual and concrete by the negation and abolition of such a being from this point of view it must be regarded as a thorough denial and flaunting of reason to give out the skull bone as the actual existence of conscious life and that is what it is given out to be when it is regarded as the outer form of spirit for the external shape is just the existent reality it is no use to say we merely draw an inference from the outer as to the inner which is something different or to say that the outer is not the inner itself but merely its expression for in the relation of the two to one another the character of self-reflecting and self-reflected reality falls just on the side of the inner while the outer has the character of existent reality 
when therefore a man is told you your inner being are so and so because your skull bone is so constituted this means nothing else than that we regard a bone as the man's reality to retort upon such a statement with a box in the ear in the way mentioned above when dealing with physiognomy brings out primarily the soft parts of his head from their apparent state and position and proves merely that these are no true inherent nature are not the reality of mind the retort here had better go the length of breaking the skull of the person who makes a statement like that in order to demonstrate to him quite as palpably as his own wisdom that a bone is nothing of an inherent nature at all for a man still less his true reality the untutored instinct of self-conscious reason will reject without examination a phrenology this other instinct of self-conscious reason is instinct for observation which having got scarcely within sight of knowledge has grasped the subject in the soulless form that the outer is an expression of the inner but the worse the thought the less sometimes does it strike us where its badness definitely lies and the more difficult is it to put one's finger on it for a thought is said to be the worse the barer and emptier the abstraction which thought takes to be the essential truth but in the antithesis here in question the component parts are individuality conscious of itself and the abstraction of a bare thing to which externality has been reduced the inner being of mind taken in the sense of a fixed soulless existence and in opposition to that abstract being with the attainment of this however rational observation seems in fact to have also reached its culminating point at which it must take leave of itself and turn right about for it is only when anything is entirely bad that there is an inherent and immediate necessity in it to wheel round completely into its opposite just so it may be said of the jews that it is precisely because they stand directly before the door of salvation that they are and have been the most reprobate and abandoned what the nation should be in and for itself this the true nature of itself is not conscious of being but puts away beyond itself by this process of deprivation and renunciation it creates for itself the possibility of a higher level of existence if once it could get the object thus renounced back again to itself than if it had never left its natural immediate state of existence because spirit is all the greater the greater the opposition out of which it returns into itself and such an opposition spirit brings about for itself by doing away with its immediate unity and laying aside its self-existence the possession of a separate life of its own but if such a consciousness does not mediate and reflect itself the middle position or term where it has a determinate existence is the fatal and holy void since what should give it substance and filling has been turned into a rigidly fixed extreme it is thus that this last stage of reason's function of observation is its very worst and for that reason its complete reversal becomes necessary for the survey of the series of relations dealt with up to this point which constitute the content and object of observation shows that even in its first form in observation of the relations of inorganic nature sensuous being vanished from its ken the moments of nature's condition present themselves as pure abstractions and as bare and simple notions which should be kept connected with the existence of things but this gets lost so that the abstract moment proves to be a pure movement and a universal this free self-complete process retains the significance of something objective but now appears as a unit in the process of the inorganic the unit is the inner with no existence when the process does have existence qua unit as one and single it is an organism the unit qua self-existent or negative entity stands in antithesis to the universal throws off its control and remains independent by itself 
so that the notion being only realized in the condition of absolute dissociation fails to find in organic existence its genuine expression in the sense that it is not there in the form of a universal it remains an outer or what is the same thing an inner of organic nature the organic process is merely free implicitly it is not so explicitly for itself the explicit phase of its freedom appears in the idea of purpose has its existence in the form of something else of a self-directing aim and guidance that lies outside the mere process reason's function of observation thus turns its attention to this aim and guidance to mind to the notion actually existing as universality or to the purpose existing in the form of purpose and what constitutes its own essential nature is now the object before it reason here in the activity of observation is directed first to the pure abstract form of its essential nature but since reason in its apprehension of the object thus working and moving amidst its own distinctions takes this object as something that exists observation becomes aware of laws of thought relations of one constant factor to another constant element the content of these laws being however merely moments they pass away into the single one of self-consciousness this new object taken in the same way as existent is the contingent individual self-consciousness the process of observation therefore keeps within the conjectured meaning of mind and within the contingent relation of conscious to unconscious reality mind alone in itself is the necessity of this relation observation therefore attacks it at closer quarters and compares its realization through will and action with its reality when it contemplates and is reflected into itself a reality which is itself objective this external aspect although an utterance of the individual which he himself contains is at the same time qua symbol something indifferent to the content which it is intended to denote just as what finds for itself the symbol is indifferent to this symbol for this reason observation finally passes from this variable form of utterance back to the permanent fixed being and in principle declares that externality is the outer immediate reality of mind not in the sense of an organ and not like a language or a symbol but in the sense of a lifeless thing what the very first form of observation of inorganic nature did away with and superseded that is the idea that the notion should appear in the shape of a thing this last form of observation reinstates so as to turn the reality of mind itself into a thing or expressing it the other way about so as to give lifeless being the significance of mind observation has thus reached the point of explicitly expressing what our notion of observation was at the outset that is that rational certainty means objectivity of reason that the certainty of reason seeks itself as an objective reality this does not indeed mean that mind which is represented by a skull is defined as a thing there shall be no materialism as it is called in this idea mind rather must be something very different from these bones of the skull but that mind is means nothing else than that it is a thing when being as such or thingness is predicated of the mind the true and genuine expression for this is therefore that mind is such an entity as the bone is hence it must be considered as supremely important that the true expression has been found for the bare statement regarding mind that it is when the statement is ever made about mind that it is has a being is a thing an individual reality we do not mean it is something we can see or knock about or take in our hands and so on but that is what we say 
and what the statement really amounts to is consequently conveyed in the expression that the existence of mind is a bone this result has now a twofold significance one is its true meaning in so far as the result is a completion of the outcome of the preceding movement of self-consciousness the unhappy self-consciousness renounced its self-sufficiency its independence and wrung out its distinctive self-existence into the shape of a thing by doing so it left the level of self-consciousness and reverted to the condition of mere consciousness that is to that phase of conscious life for which the object is an existent a thing but what is thing in this case is self-consciousness thing here is the unity of ego and being the category when the object before consciousness is determined thus consciousness possesses reason consciousness as well as self-consciousness is in itself properly reason in an implicit form but only that consciousness can be said to have reason whose object has the character of being the category from this however the knowledge of what is reason is still distinct the category which is the immediate unity of being and self sein und seinen must traverse both forms and the conscious attitude of observation is just where the category is set forth in the form of being in its result consciousness expresses that whose unconscious implicit certainty it is in the shape of a proposition the proposition which lies in the very notion of reason this proposition is the infinite judgment that the self is a thing a judgment that cancels and transcends itself through this result then the category gets the added characteristic of being the self-cancelling opposition the pure category which is present to consciousness in the form of being or immediacy is still an unmediated and merely given object and the attitude of consciousness is also direct has no mediation in it that infinite judgment is the moment which brings about the transition of immediacy into mediation or negativity the given present object is therefore characterized as a negative object while consciousness in its relation towards it assumes the form of self-consciousness or the category which traverses the form of being in the process of observation is now set up in the form of self-existence as now a distinctive being for its own sake consciousness no longer seeks to find itself immediately but to produce itself by its own activity consciousness itself is the purpose and end of its own action as in the process of observation it has to do merely with things the other meaning of the result is the one already considered that of unsystematic begrifflos observation this has no other way of understanding and expressing what it is about than by declaring the reality of self-consciousness to consist in the skull-bone just as it appears in the form of a thing of sense still retaining its character as an object for consciousness in stating this however it has no clear consciousness as to what the statement involves and does not grasp the determinate character of the subject and predicate in the proposition and of their relation to one another still less does it grasp the proposition in the sense of a self-resolving infinite judgment and the notion rather in virtue of a deeper lying self-consciousness of mind which has the appearance here of being an innate sincerity and honesty of nature the ignominiousness of such an irrational crude thought as that of taking a bone for the reality of self-consciousness is concealed and the very senselessness of introducing all sorts of relations of cause and effect symbol organ etc which are perfectly meaningless here and of hiding away the glaring folly of the proposition behind distinctions derived from them all this puts a gloss on that thought and whitewashes its naked absurdity
brain fibres and the like looked at as forms of the being of mind are from the first an imagined and merely hypothetical actuality not an existent reality not felt seen in short not true reality if they do exist if they are seen they are lifeless objects and then no longer pass for the being of mind but objectivity proper must take an immediate a sensuous form so that in this objectivity qua lifeless for the bone is lifeless so far as it is in the living being itself mind is definitely established as real as actual the principle involved in this idea is that reason claims to be all thinghood even thinghood of a purely objective kind it is this however in conceptu only the notion is its truth and the purer the notion itself is the more silly an idea does it become if its content does not take the shape of a notion begriff but of a mere presentation or idea vorstellung if the self-superseding judgment is not taken with the consciousness of its infinity but is taken as a stable and permanent proposition the subject and predicate of which hold good each on its own account self fixed as self thing as thing while one has to be the other all the same reason essentially the notion is immediately parted asunder into itself and its opposite an opposition which just for that reason is immediately again superseded but by presenting itself in this way as both itself and its opposite and when held fast in the entirely particular moment of this disintegration reason is apprehended in an irrational form and the purer the moments of this opposition are the more glaring is the appearance of this content which is either solely a content for consciousness or solely expressed by consciousness in a naive form the depth which mind brings out from within but carries no further than to make it a presentation vorstellung and let it remain at this level and the ignorance on the part of this consciousness as to what it really says are the same kind of connection of higher and lower which in the case of the living being nature naively expresses when it combines the organ of its highest fulfilment the organ of generation with the organ of urination the infinite judgment qua infinite would correspond to the fulfilment of life that comprehends itself while the consciousness of life that remains at the level of presentation would correspond to urination end of section eighteen